0: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Cass, to... that charming little ditty is called Masculine Women, Feminine Men, and it was sung by Irving Kaufman in 1926, and what well, I just have to say, what a perfect way to introduce the very first installment
1: of a two-part episode on gender-bending fashion. And what exciting episodes we have for you this week and next. For the next week, we will be celebrating this June's World Pride alongside millions of people around the globe who have thrown countless parades, lectures, music and philanthropic events and joyous sweaty dance parties to celebrate love and the rainbow of diversity that is the human experience.
0: And while Pride Month is just about over, it's actually just ramping up to a feverish pace here in New York City, due in part to a landmark milestone in the history of gay rights. Well, I say in part because, let's face it, Cast Pride is always a celebration here in New York. Um, but this one, this particular Pride is extra special, and that is because Friday, June 28th, marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots when members of the LGBTQ communities at large stood up to the legacy of brutality, arrest and harassment at the hands of the NYPD.
1: A police raid in the early morning hours of June 28th, 1969 at the West Village Gay Bar, the Stonewall Inn, was met with resistance by patrons and sparked a rebellion that would last the next six days. So what began as a skirmish grew to a riot as further numbers of outraged members of the NYC LGBTQ plus communities joined in. And this event became the catalyst for gay liberation movements, which quickly sprang up not only in the United States, but also around the world.
0: And Cass, I read um, several different uh, firsthand accounts from people that were at the riots. And one of uh, my favorite things was more than one mention of how some of the drag queens who were protesting took up this program of kind of comically mocking and mimicking the police. <laughs> um, which is extra fierce when you realize that their very presence on the street was actually a cause for arrest. And that is Because at this time in New York City, there was actually a criminal statute pertaining to the wearing of gender quote unquote inappropriate clothing, which, you know, would be shocking to us now if we didn't already know that there was a very long history of legislation of this sort that spans hundreds
1: of years. So very true. And today we are so pleased to welcome Michelle Tallini Finamore to tell us more about the past, present, and future of the intersection of gender and dress. She is the Penny Vinnick Curator of Fashion Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, where her groundbreaking exhibition, Gender Bending Fashion, is currently on view now until August 25th, 2019. So you still have plenty of time this summer to get out there and check it out. Michelle, welcome to the show. Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Thanks so much for having me, April.
0: Yeah. um, And first of all, I just want to say congratulations on this exhibition. It... I'm, I'm not even joking. It's probably one of my favorite fashion exhibitions that I've seen in years because from the concept to the, the selection of the garments that are in the exhibition to the exhibition design, which is incredible, the whole thing is just really, really well done. And, and, and if that's not enough, there's actually a wonderful takeaway publication that's much more than just an exhibition brochure. So thank you. I really love the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm really flattered that you liked it so much. It's um, it's been a real labor of love for me, um, and it's something I've been thinking about for so long, but really kind of fully working on for the last two years, I'd say. But I've been thinking about it for about five. So it was it was really satisfying to see it come together, and I have to say, you know, I really love what you you do with Dressed, and so to have. Praise um, is really, really meaningful for me.
0: Ah, oh, well, thank you. And 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 mean seriously, it shows that you've been thinking about this for five years. It totally <laughs> shows. That's great. Yeah. And there's so much content in this exhibition. And and one of the things that I really liked initially when I walked in is that you addressed head on a lot of information that you probably knew that was going to be new to quite a few of the viewers or attendees to the exhibition. And and I think that a lot of people are curious about the way in which notions of gender are evolving in contemporary society, but they don't really always know where to go to look for information on that. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why this exhibition has drawn so many visitors. When I was there, it was jammed.
2: Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been pretty, it's been very successful. I have to say the press coverage has been great. The visitorship has been great. And we're about halfway through. We close on August 24th. And um, I'm hoping that we'll kind of, you know, keep seeing the, the good pace coming through the space. Yeah.
0: My first question for you is, how do you define gender in the show? And how does gender relate to both sex
2: and sexual orientation? Sure. So um, I want to uh, preempt part of uh, the answer to my question with speaking about how we engaged a lot of outside voices in the process of this exhibition. And I do feel because it was such a sensitive and timely topic, we really needed to reach out to various communities. And so when we were thinking about how we introduce the concepts of gender versus sex gender identity versus gender expression and all of these other terms that aren't familiar to um, you know to everyone We really felt like we needed to bring in people from the gender studies profession, the LGBTQIA+ community, we had roundtables and, and or convenings with people from really a wide swath of folks. So we engaged our teen arts council, um, college students from various colleges within the uh, Boston area. We brought in um, a gender studies professional who is also a trans individual um, named Matisse Dupont, who was really instrumental in helping us kind of think, think through a lot of the the terms, as well as the way we approach the subject. And then we also brought in Dr. Joe Tregilio from Simmons University, who helped us kind of with our uh, label with gender definitions that range everywhere from gender queer to trans to non-binary to help acclimate people. So Um, It was really a very kind of big effort, and it wasn't just me and my vision. (laughs) Um, And also, um, our head of interpretation, Adam Tessier, was really key in the process as well. And so it was really um, an interesting conversation. We felt like it was a dialogue that needed to be started. Um, And we think of the exhibition really as an opening of a dialogue. It's not the final word on anything, because we can't really do that with the way the conversation changes really by the day. So when we set up this idea of gender versus sex, um, it's not really versus. I mean, they're often used interchangeably in everyday speech, but in recent decades, the words have really taken on very distinct meanings. So we think about it as sex describing biology and anatomy, and biology is just one of the factors that encompasses how how people define their own gender. So gender really becomes much more related to the historic social cultural context kind of in which it exists and how it impacts your own definition of gender.
0: Yeah. And how does that also relate to sexual orientation? Because you make this very clear in some of your texts that accompanies the exhibition.
2: Yes. So um, I think that when I think about sexual orientation versus gender expression, for example, um, sexual orientation can be kind of the way you move through the world as a sexual being and what those relationships are, you know, within that world. Whereas something like gender expression is how you express your gender through clothing, through language, through other outward signs. So it's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. <laughs> it really is um, a very complicated conversation to have. And um, that's one of the reasons we've, you know, tried to set up a framework for people when they enter the show.
0: Yeah, and, and I have to just say, this is actually a question that I was going to ask you later uh, or, or a compliment perhaps I was going to give you later, but I loved the fact that right when you walk in the show, there is like a vocabulary definitions of all these terms like what's the difference between agender versus non-binary um, and and I actually I really learned a lot because there are some very fine nuances between a lot of these terms so thank you for that
2: yeah you're <laughs> you're welcome yeah and I- say, I mean, one of the things, like, as I mentioned, the roundtables, one of the things that had really kind of came to light when we started engaging kind of our visitors, um, our museum supporters, is that there was a great generation gap Mm -hmm. between these understandings of these terms. And so speaking with the teens and the college students, you know, they're completely engaged in the conversation. They know the terms, they get them this notion of kind of gender being on a spectrum is not new to them whereas you go above a certain age say 40 and up and it's it's a steeper learning curve and so I had a lot of people kind of of an older generation thanking me for those terms because um, you know one uh, woman in particular who is one of our museum supporters said you know we just we have a child who is now transitioning and so For her, this was hugely important for people to have a takeaway and understand what this meant.
0: Yeah, and I I think this kind of leads us to one of the very first objects that you see when you enter the exhibition, which is an ensemble that was worn by the 27-year-old at that time, hip-hop artist Young Thug on the cover of his album, No, My Name is Jeffrey. Can you tell us about this ensemble and why is it significant? Sure.
2: So the ensemble is by a very young designer named Alessandro Trincone, who is based in Italy. It has become the signature image for the show. One of the reasons we kind of decided it would be the opener is because it really expresses so much about much of the messaging we want to get through in the exhibition, which is really the stories and the narratives of both the designers and the wearers in the exhibition. And so what I love about this is it, it kind of brings those two together because Trincone himself had a rough upbringing in terms of dealing with his own um, gender identity and how he expressed his own gender via uh, clothing. And so his way of grappling with it as a designer is to turn menswear on its head. So he presents all of his garments on men on a runway, your traditional kind of high fashion runway. Um, And yet they really um, kind of blurred the binary between masculine and feminine. Um, So he studied in Italy and Japan. And one thing I think is so fascinating about this garment is that it actually is based on the construction of Japanese lanterns. It's a gray kind of uh, suspender style garment with this big kind of ruffled skirt with tiers of gray. Fabric and so there, it's these strips of fabric that are cut in alternating spots that kind of create the ruffles and it's based on this Japanese lantern construction. And Young Thug, um, you know, was saw the garment and decided to wear it on the cover of his album. Um, no, my name is Jeffrey and. Really, when he looked at it, he didn't think of it as feminizing. He thought it had power. It it was embedded with power. And one of the reasons he felt it to be empowering rather than feminizing is because uh, it reminded him of a video game character in Mortal Kombat named Sub Zero, who wears samurai-inspired dress. And so, when you think of warriors in non-Western cultures who wear skirted garments, that's what this represented for him. So I loved that it kind of captured both the personal. Um, perspective of Troncone, as well as Young Thug's, you know, kind of bravery in taking this on and and wearing it as well.
0: Yeah, and and as a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, I spoke to Laura Camerlingo about fans, and we talked about how the samurai warriors carried fans because they were symbols of authority. So it just brings us back to this point that we talk about again and again and again on Dressed is that the gendering of garments is so much arbitrary in terms of, like, space, time, country. Um, It's all about the context. Yes. So before you even go into the exhibition, you have to walk down this really lovely, beautiful corridor in the museum. And on that wall, there is a massive timeline. So what is on the timeline and why was it important for viewers to see the timeline before they actually enter the exhibition proper?
2: So uh, coming off of your last comment about the social historical context as really feeding into our binary understanding of gender in Western society, uh, one thing I really wanted to make sure was encompassed in the exhibition was this notion of historic cultural context and with a fashion exhibition, we have the garments in there. We have imagery, we have video, we have music. So we, I, I tried to kind of mix it up in terms of the media, and yet you can't to kind of get a sense of what the great sweep of Western culture is and these ideas and uh, that have informed our understanding of gender. I felt like we needed to kind of cover it more broadly, and so the timeline starts with Queen Hatshepsut of Egypt wearing a beard to express her power in ancient Egypt. Uh, We have a passage from Deuteronomy about uh, men not wearing women's garments and vice versa. So a biblical passage. And really, I do think that uh, a lot of our notions, these entrenched notions of uh, binary understanding of gender are really related to religion and politics. And, you know, it's a a very kind of complex story. So it goes all the way from, you know, ancient times and mostly through the 19th and 20th century, and we end with Billy Porter wearing that <laughs> fabulous tuxedo gown designed by Christian Suriano for the Oscars. But I felt like it was important to include, you know, not only the fashion moments like Paul Poiret and the introduction of quote-unquote harem pants or the juke culotte in the teens. Um, but also, you know, Amelia Bloomer in the 19th century and her introduction of Bloomer style dress as it relates to female emancipation. But also, you know, we're at the 50th anniversary of sto- the Stonewall riots. And one of the reasons some of those figures, you know, were were arrested, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha Johnson was because of cross-dressing ordinances, which were still on the books. So, you know, the again, you kind of have to really think about this broad sweep of cultural history when you're thinking about why we are so deeply embedded in these binary understandings of gender.
0: Yeah, and it, it's a conversation that's been literally, I mean, when I say literally, I, I mean it in that sense for centuries. Yes,
2: yes, completely. So when I think about how to present that as a fashion historian, It is very difficult because, you know, you love to kind of represent all of that in the show, but that's impossible because, you know, you have a limited amount of space. You also have to think about how to get a message across to, um, you know, both an audience, more of a general audience in a fine art museum for sure. So you can't bring everything into it. And this was one way that I thought, okay, we can't cover it all in this show. As much as I would love to have gone more in depth in different aspects of the subject, This, at least, I felt like gave you kind of that broader context.
0: Yeah. And it it was just a very smart curatorial decision, I just have to say.
2: (laughs) That's good to hear. Yeah. And again, that was um, something that was kind of, again, like a joint effort. We had ideas about what we wanted to include and we mocked up the whole timeline and it was probably three times as many events and images. And then we narrowed it down with a lot of, you know, we kind of invited a few people into the process to see you know, kind of narrow it down to what we thought were the very key important moments. So
0: my next question is kind of like tagging on to the young thug ensemble that we first see. You've noted in the exhibition text that, I'm going I'm to quote you here, quote, recent surveys estimate that 20 to 50 percent of contemporary young people self-identify as something other than strictly Male or female. So Michelle, would you elaborate on these statistics because i'm I'm sure this data might be a bit surprising to some of our listeners.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, those statistics were taken from a number of different studies. So there have been studies done by um, LGBTQ advocacy organizations. There have been studies cited in different newspapers like The Guardian in England, market studies like market research studies. So the 20 to 50 percent kind of captures a lot of those different statistics in one you know, fell swoop. But it is kind of amazing that even certainly in the last couple of years that some of these studies have shown that of people aged 18 to 24 do identify as something other than 100% heterosexual. So it's really kind of culled from a lot of different places. But um, the 20 to 50% range was something I felt comfortable with. Um, And I don't know if you might have seen, you know, there's so much about this in the press and about millennials, Generation Z and their approach to gender on a spectrum um, and, you know, Time Magazine, National Geographic, all sorts of popular press, uh, magazines, internet sites have really been grappling with this. So um, you see a lot of these statistics coming through.
0: Yeah, and and, and as we're beginning to see these things shift in these younger generations, it will, has, and will continue to find expression in the manner in which people dress. And and, and this really kind of leads us to this great fashion binary <laughs> which is pants versus skirts. (laughs) So when did the gendering of silhouettes first emerge in Western dress?
2: Well, if we think back more, you know, kind of more historically, even to ancient times, and we think about Romans and Greeks, right? they are Romans in their togas, Greek warriors in their skirts, um, which were really considered proof of their virility and actually much more practical for combat. Um, And then as you kind of move through Western history and the advent of horseback riding, you know, that necessitates the use of a bifurcated garment. And what I find fascinating about that is that, you know, you've got warriors or soldiers on horseback, you know, needing pants to be comfortable on horseback. And then when we think about we kind of shift forward to the early 1900s and we look at the bicycle, for example, that is a great game changer in terms of women starting for bifurcated garments as well, you know. So anyway, so a lot of it kind of has to do with the practical perspective. Um, And then the development of tailoring in the 14th and 15th century, you know, with the kind of men wearing tunics over hose, that gradually transitioned into fully sheathed legs. And then this whole dichotomy, you know, the binary between the skirted woman and the suited male or the the man in pants is really a kind of a post-French revolution moment. Um, And, you know, what happens is this great shakeup, this democratization of society and this, you know, this kind of rise of the middle class, rise of consumerism, um, capitalist society and men starting to, you know, this kind of notion of men in the middle class is moving into these jobs in which they need a uniform. They need a, you know, kind of standard uniform that binds them together and presents this more democratic ideal. So that's how I see some of it unfolding.
0: We're going to take a short sponsor break here. But when we come back, let's explore the question, who gets to wear the pants? Welcome back. Michelle, throughout history, there have been actual laws that legislated this binary of dress that we've been discussing, particularly on the point of women wearing pants. And I remember very distinctly being an undergrad, like 20 years old, sitting in art history class, learning about how the French painter Rosa Bonheur had to apply to the police for a special permission to wear pants in the 1850s, which was like, it it like Blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And, And she was not the only woman of her generation that was fighting for the right to wear pants. There were others.
2: Yes? Yes. That is definitely true. And I have a section in the exhibition specifically related to the history of women wearing pants. And one of the issues I really wanted to bring to the fore was a focus on some of these really brave individuals who fought against convention. And one of them, as you mentioned, Rosa Bonner is one. um, I've always found her really fascinating. There are people such as Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, uh, who's she's uh, featured on our timeline. She was a civil war surgeon, a prisoner of war, in, you know, 19th century, she wore pants her entire life. She got married in trousers. As did Elizabeth Hawes, by the way. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, yes. We've already done an episode on her. If you want to learn more about Elizabeth Hawes, check that out.
2: <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. I mean, she's another, another like incredibly individualistic uh, designer and personality who stayed true to her, you know, own ideas of what was right and good. And Dr. Mary Edwards Walker was was definitely one of those people. And, you know, she got arrested numerous times for wearing pants for wearing pants and and really persisted. And what I love about her story is that, you know, we have her out in the timeline and her image from the 1860s, 70s um, in her very kind of, you know, her pants and her very masculine jacket. And she looks quite like a force to be reckoned with. And then we have another image in the show by a young photographer named Prisca Monnier, and it's called Dandy Queens. And she essentially set up uh, an image of various figures in history who she felt were really true individuals who really remained true to themselves and who they were and expressed it through dress. And Dr. Mary Edwards Walker was one of them. Um, And the Dandy Queen series is all African women um, kind of set up in this little historic vignette. And they're wearing these really tailored male style garments and Mary Edwards Walker is one of the people represented in that series, as well as Joe March from Little Women, for example. But I think that some of those stories like Rosa Bonheur and Mary Edwards Walker, they're a little bit more well-known in history, but there are so many others who are lesser known that I think, and I think that's really fascinating too. Um, I'd love to mention, I used a book for a source by a local artist named Ria Brodel, who did a series called Butch Heroes, and she essentially delved into a long history of women wearing menswear. All of these stories surfaced that I had never heard of, you know. So there's a woman um, named Petra Pedro Ruiz, who was a Mexican woman who enlisted in the Constitutionalist Army in 1913 and became a lieutenant. A respected lieutenant was never it was never known that she was a woman. And she ended up protecting a 17 year old woman from rape because they thought she was a man. And she said, no, I'm going to take this one, you know, and protected this young woman from. And then it was only later in life that they discovered that this was a woman dressed in military garbed. So anyway, the stories are, you know, there's a lot of them out there. It's a very rich history. And I think it's really worth kind of, you know, looking more deeply into it.
0: Yeah. And and this is something that we really love trying to explore undressed, Dressed. And I, and I think that the internet and things being digitized is really all of a sudden providing this atmosphere where these stories are starting to like bloom to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I love that so much.
2: Yeah, well, I have to say it's the Internet is incredible in that regard. And I think that certainly one of the reasons that this exhibition has come together, and I think one of the reasons that the whole notion of gender um, is being turned on its head is because of that connectivity that people are finding by the Internet, via social media. You know, they're finding their communities, they're finding ways to express themselves which they really didn't have before we had that platform.
0: Right. So there is this long and storied history of these binaries that are assigned to clothing being challenged, particularly in subcultural styles. Would you give us a few examples of some of your favorite expressions of subcultural gender bending?
2: well, I guess it depends on how you define subculture, of course. Uh, One of the, and that's what, you know, I think that one of the aspects I really wanted to get across in the exhibition, and one of the reasons I feel like it was important to be multimedia, was to include figures in history, both kind of on film, on television, in pop culture, pop musicians, who really, you know, kind of pushed the boundaries of gendered dress. Um, And so when I think about People like David Bowie, uh, we have one of his suits in the exhibition. Um, I think, you know, he moved beyond subculture, of course, yeah. <laughs> because he is such a for sure. hugely influential, you know, uh, kind of gender blurring and genre blurring icon. But I felt, you know, those people needed to be represented for sure. And so we do that in the exhibition through some of the garments. We do it with imagery. I have a soundtrack that's playing throughout the show that stretches from the 1920s with a song called Masculine Women, Feminine Men, and all the way through to the current day with somebody like Lady Gaga singing Born This Way. But I do feel like, you know, these are very key figures um, who have been hugely influential for generations, kind of gender blurring folks. So, you know, that's one example of that. Um, I have uh, Marlena Dietrich's tales from the 1930 film Morocco. And one of the aspects of kind of the history of that garment that I wanted to get across was that Dietrich, before she came to Hollywood, was coming out of this 1920s Berlin nightclub scene in which there were, you know, when you think about uh, kind of blurring of boundaries and binaries, you know, that scene had it in spades. And so, you know, there were cross-dressers, there were drag performers, there were all sorts of things happening in that world. And she comes out of that world and she brings it to Hollywood, which I think is kind of amazing, right? So she's in Morocco in 1930 and really insisted on wearing those tails designed by Travis Banton for that film and had to fight a little bit. The studio did not want to present her in the tales, they really wanted to present the glamorous Hollywood starlet. Um, And she persisted, and that scene has become really one of the most iconic scenes in film history.
0: Yeah, and I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, what role do you think that the media and maybe even film specifically played in women in pants crossing over into high fashion and even haute couture?
2: So I think it was hugely influential. I have a pair of pants in the exhibition designed by Kay Thompson of Eloise <laughs> fame <Yeah. laughs> and also um, who, you know, was in Funny Face. Uh, so she's a performer, but she also designed a line of pants called Fancy Pants which she was always a big pants proponent in the 30s and 40s. You see images of her in trousers. uh, And she really wanted to promote this notion of women wearing pants on a more kind of general basis. So she designed this line called Fancy Pants. And She tried to find a manufacturer. She had a hard time finding a manufacturer. Finally, Evan Picone agreed to manufacture them, but they were a bit embarrassed by being associated with the promotion of women wearing pants. So they set up a shell company called Diva Designs. <laughs> to sell it. Um, and then what they realized is that there really was a need in the marketplace for this. Women were responding positively. And so they eventually hired Robert Evans, the actor, you know, famously known for the Kids' Days in the Picture, who became the Evan Picon spokesperson. And um, he actually was quoted as saying, um, without exception, it was taboo with a capital T. Selling Bibles to hell's angels would have been an easier sell. Wow. Yeah, I (laughs) know, which is kind of amazing. And he specifically mentions Boston, you know, which has this reputation for being more conservative in terms of dress, not necessarily politics. But they really took off. And I was so delighted when I went to go view Dietrich's garments in at the Berlin Kinematech Museum in Germany you know, I really wanted to see any form of trousers that she wore and really her wardrobe is full of both. You know, I would say it's equally split between the glamorous Hollywood gowns, the Adrians, the um, Schiaparelli's. And the Levi's, the, um, she has some Carhartt jeans in there. <laughs> kind of amazing. And also she had these fancy pants and I had never seen a pair in person. So I was delighted. I said, oh my gosh, this is amazing history. Just wrapped into these fancy pants by Kay Thompson. Who, by
0: the way, she choreographed the American number at the Battle of Versailles.
2: She did? I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Her history is just fantastic. So, you know, but they were also worn by Laura Petri on The Dick Van Dyke Show, right? So which is reaching the masses on an extreme level, right? And Laura Petri, Mary Tyler Moore, she also had to kind of fight with the studio executives to wear pants. She said, you know, a woman at home is not going to be vacuuming in a skirt. You know, it's more practical. So there's this whole idea, you know, kind of 1950s, you're getting women wearing them casually, but they're still forbidden in a lot of contexts. And then I also have a a sketch by uh, John Bates that shows Diana Rigg as Emma Peel in The Avengers, and she's wearing that fabulous leather catsuit, right? And so that was a hit television show. You know, she's this incredible, like somewhat of a force to be reckoned with on that show, you know, solving crimes in this leather cat suit. And yet in 1966, she was actually turned away from a New York City nightclub because she was wearing a white wool pantsuit. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of these uh, contrasting messages out there in the world for a lot of the, certainly the latter half of the 20th century related to pants wearing for women.
0: We're going to take another short sponsor break, but more soon with Michelle. Maybe retrace our footsteps just a second here and ask you, because we were talking about uh Dietrich and and her tuxedo, her suit. I'd like to ask you about this kind of ubiquitous tailored suit of the quote unquote working woman, because it actually has an intriguing connection to the history of sportswear. And there is an entire section in the exhibition on sportswear. So what are we seeing about the history of sportswear that leads us? Forward to women wearing suits in the workplace?
2: Well, I cover a number of different subjects within the history of sportswear there. So there are garments related to horseback riding, for example, equestrian attire, which, again, as we talked about, like this idea of the bifurcated garment being introduced because of horseback riding, you know, that kind of does maintain its influence, you know, throughout Western history. And so the idea of women wearing, you know, pants. Is you know kind of helped along by horseback riding um, and bicycling and bicycling right so bicycling I think is key so we have a great bicycle ensemble in the exhibition um, and you know in um, eighteen ninety six or late nineteenth century you know the the bicycle really becomes this great symbol of women's emancipation and there is a handbook for lady cyclists that was written then. And the author, Lilius Campbell Davidson, said it's really the skirt which rules the destinies of the women on the bicycle. Um, and so if you think about standard attire for women in the late 19th century, you're still wearing some sort of corset, for sure, you're wearing crinolines or some sort of bustle, you know, garment. And how do you ride on a bicycle with those those garments? Um, So I do feel like it was hugely important in terms of emancipating the women's body and also emancipating it in a public space. Right, so participating in this sport in a public space. So one of the garments we have in the show is this great bicycle ensemble from early 1900s, and it is it looks like a skirt, but it has a panel on the top that buttons off, and underneath is actually culottes. So it's a it's kind of like this transitional garment, and there are all these patents that are taken out in the late 19th, early 20th century to make. Uh, the garments more practical for women and so that they can actually really get on a bike and ride and i also have this corset that we recently acquired it was designed by warner corset company and it's called the cyclist it's actually printed on the inside of the corset <laughs> the cyclist right and so i put it on display next to the bicycle ensemble because i i just wanted to provide that contrast so even though they're making great strides in comfort and practicality you still have this corset, which you're supposed to wear while bicycling. And um, it's supposedly made more comfortable by these like little extra flexible panels on the side, but I can't imagine riding a bicycle in a corset. (laughs) So yeah, but I do think all of these kind of moments in history, these developments for women's dress had a huge impact on what eventually became more acceptable for women to wear out there in the world, on the street, in the workplace. There was also a, a bathing suit uh, designed by Annette Kellerman, and I don't know if you know. Oh much yes, about- yes, yes, yes. She got
0: arrested, right, for wearing.
2: Yeah, so I, I can't really. I delved into that arrest story. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or. But what I did find is that she certainly got fined for wearing inappropriate attire on various beaches. Um, there's one that has a local connection where she was at Revere Beach. And so what was considered inappropriate for women in the early 1900s was anything that exposed too much skin. And also she was a big proponent of the one-piece swimsuit for women because she was a competitive swimmer. And how do you swim with the stockings, the bloomers, the big, a you know, skirt. tunic? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so she designed her own line of swimsuits, which was, you know, were more practical for really swimming. <laughs> so
0: yeah, and and so for women, like, in what way did these expectations of like, what is proper attire for work? Versus play, play out. Because just going back for a second, you know, you mentioned um, the riding habit before. And I think that within the history of fashion, kind of what we see happening is with the riding habit is it it kind of eventually evolves into this working suit that women are expected to wear at work, perhaps still today. But that suit, which has masculine connotations, obviously— isn't necessarily what is expected of women when they're outside of the workplace and this is a very interesting tension to me
2: yes yeah no i think i think that you're completely on target there and i think that this whole notion of power dressing you know is is very key to the evolution of Women's wear within the workspace. Um, so, if you think about women in the 19 teens and the 1920s, and again, this kind of more of a democratization of culture um, of of classes, and this kind of rising middle class and women moving into workplaces they had formerly not been part of. You know, you do see that when they're out there working as a clerk or a department store girl or whatever it might be, they adopt kind of more masculine inspired attire. So it's often kind of this tailored jacket with a skirt. And what that eventually evolves into is what we think of as power dressing in the 1970s, which again, you see this great influx of women into the workforce in roles that they had formerly not really participated in. So it's things such as law and finance. And so what emerges in that era is this kind of the Bible of power dressing, which is this 1977 book called The Women's Dress for Success Book. And it really kind of popularized the notion of power dressing and encouraged this uniform that really mimicked men's attire. And so when you think about these moments in history when women were, you know, trying to participate in what was traditionally a man's world, They co-opt the look of the men in power. You know, it's a power suit. So I found the Dress for Success book such a a fascinating subject in and of itself. Um, And it really does encourage a skirted suit. They don't encourage pants, per se. It's really interesting. Um, And they really talk about how, you know, for women to have equal status and equal pay, They need a collective image equal to that of men. And when I've given tours, I have to say, one of my favorite thing about um, giving tours of this exhibition is that everyone has a story, especially um, a lot of the older generation who lived through this. And one woman approached me and said, I started working in finance on Wall Street in the early 80s. And she said, I was given that book. You know, This was your uniform. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of amazing.
1: We agree. That's amazing. And listeners, if like me, you don't want this conversation to end, you're lucky because as we mentioned at the top of the episode, this is only part one of a two-part episode on gender bending. Michelle will actually be back with us next week on July 2nd to chat with us about gender bending gentlemen. She sure will. And we will
0: sign off for this week, but hope you consider doing a little gender bending yourself next time you get dressed. Please be sure to tune into our Thursday fashion history mini for more pride content that I promise you, you don't want to miss. And if you'd like to write to us with questions for an upcoming mini where we answer your listener questions, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com, or you can direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at Dressed
1: Last week, we were happy to announce our June 2020 dress group trip to Paris. We will be taking dress listeners who join us to fashion exhibitions, archives, auctions, flea markets, and so much more. If you'd like to register your interest to receive updates, please visit likemindstravel.com. More info on that coming soon. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes this show possible each week.